0: Shalom Aleichem, my sweetest friends. Another week of Hasidic stories. But before I start the stories, I want to dedicate this episode to the memory of the soldiers that died defending us here in the land of Israel, to the continued success of the IDF, wherever it is, the returning of the hostages, safe and whole, the comforting of the families of those who lost loved ones, and the full recovery of anyone who's sick or injured. There once was a chassid of Rabbi Dovber, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, also known as the Mitla Rebbe, who of course was the son of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. And this chassid rented an inn with a tavern from a local pooritz, landowner, and for several years he was unable to pay his rent. Now, as you know, my sweetest friends, in those days, rent was paid yearly. And as the year progressed, this Hasid tried to set aside money but he could never seem to save enough. When it came the end of the year, he couldn't pay the rent. So the Porrits would let him delay it for another year and another year. And this went on for a few years until the poet said he wasn't willing to wait any longer. And so not only was this Jew in danger of losing his source of income and livelihood, but he'd also lose his home and might even get thrown into debtor's prison. And so this chassid, the tavern and inn owner, came to the Midler Rebbe for a private audience, for Yechidis, and explained to the Rebbe what was going on. And the Rebbe looked at the innkeeper and he said, what would you like me to do? So he told the Rebbe that he knows that there's a wealthy chassid, a businessman, whose name is Pinchas Aleph, Pinchas A. Eh. And this chassid, who ran the inn, knew that Pinchas A eh was a personal friend of the Purit's And therefore, maybe he could speak with him and try to help at least keep him in the inn until he could somehow pay off the debt. So the Rebbe said, okay, sure, no problem. He takes a piece of paper and a quill and he writes out the letter. He folds it up, hands it to the and The Chassid is already feeling much more confident. He walks out and when he gets out to the street, he opens the letter and looks at it. But he realizes that it was addressed to the wrong person. Instead of being addressed to Pinchas A, it was addressed to Pinchas R. The Chassid thought, this is very strange. The name Pinchas is not a normal name. And even if there's two Pinchases, how could the Rebbe get confused and address the letter to Pinchas R instead of Pinchas A? The Chassid thought the Rebbe must have made a mistake. He knew Pinchas R. Pinchas R was a friend of his. And he was just as poor as the innkeeper. He didn't have any connections. So how would addressing the letter to Pinchas R help him? So he went back to the Rebbe's room. And He sees the gabbai, the attendant, standing there. And he says, I have to speak with the Rebbe. And the gabbai says, what for? He said, well, the Rebbe gave me a letter. But he made a mistake. The Rebbe has to fix the letter. And the Gabai looks at this chassid, And he said, many people have been waiting to see the Rebbe. And you can't get in without an appointment. So you'll have to wait another month for an appointment. And the Chazid said, but you don't understand. This is a matter of life and death for me. I might lose my home. I might get thrown in prison. And I can't wait, not even till tomorrow. It's only going to take a few seconds. He just has to change the name on the letter. And then he shows the letter to the Gabba. He says, you see, he wrote it to the wrong Pinchas. I know both of them. One's a businessman, and one's poor like me, and the letter is addressed to the poor guy instead of the businessman. The Rebbe has to fix the letter. You now the Rebbe's son, Rebbe Nachum, was there, and he saw what was going on, so he came over, and he told the Chassid, my sweetest friend, a Rebbe doesn't make mistakes. And of course, he was talking about his father. And the Hasid looked at the Rebbe's son, and he figured, okay, the son said the Rebbe doesn't make mistakes, so the Rebbe must not have made a mistake. And so he decided the next day he was going to go to Pinchas R, his poor friend, and present him with the Rebbe's letter, and see how the Rebbe never makes mistakes. And when he arrived at Pinchas R's run-down house, Pinchas, of course, was very happy to see his old friend. He said, come on in, let's have a tea, sit by the fireplace, and Pinchas sees the letter that the innkeeper has. He says, what's that? The innkeeper says, well, it actually happens to be a letter from the Rebbe for you. And Pinchas R, says, really, why is the Rebbe writing me letters? And so he opens up the letter. And in the letter, it says, dear Pinchas R, my chassid is sitting there in your room right now. And he asked me to write a letter. And I agreed to write this letter saying that you please intervene on his behalf with the poets because he hasn't been able to pay his rent for several years. So please go and speak to the poets and see what you can do. So Pinchas R, he says to the innkeeper, I think the Rebbe made a mistake. And the innkeeper says, you see, that's what I thought. I went to the Gabbai, I said the Rebbe made a mistake. And the Rebbe's son, Reb Nachum, he came and he said, a Rebbe doesn't make mistakes. So we're both in agreement, right? The Rebbe made a mistake, but the Chassid said no. If Rebnachum said that a Rebbe doesn't make mistakes, Then a Rebbe doesn't make mistakes. It's true, I have no idea how I'm supposed to help you. But if there's anything that I can do, I'm going to help you. And the two of them enjoyed learning a little bit together. They had a meal together and then they went to sleep because it was cold. It was winter. And in the middle of the night, around three o'clock in the morning, there's a banging on the door. Pinchas R. He gets up. He goes to the door and he says, who's there? And the person on the other side of the door says, Open, please, it's freezing. I might freeze to death. It's me, the Count, the Poritz. Pinchas R opens the door. And to his shock and surprise, there is the Poritz, the very person that he was planning on visiting the next day and trying to convince to help his friend, the innkeeper, standing at his front door, soaked and shivering from the cold. <sighs> Pincha says, please, your honor, come in. He sat him down by the fireplace. He brought him some tea and dry clothes, fed him, gave him some vodka. And of course, the innkeeper was also there. And Pinchas says, what are you doing outside in this weather at this time of night? So the poet said that he went for a walk, just as the sun was setting. And he went deep into the forest. And all of a sudden, it started pouring rain. And it took him hours to get to the first house that he encountered when he left the forest. And that's this house here, the house of Pinchas R. And immediately, Pinchas understood that the Rebbe didn't make a mistake. Of course, they all went to bed for the night. And the innkeeper and Pinchas were waiting to see how things were going to unfold. The next morning, the porrits woke up late. He ate a little breakfast. Get ready to go back home. And turning to Pinchas, he says to him, I'm very grateful for everything you've done for me. Please, I want to repay your kindness. What do you need? What can I do for you? Pinchas said, please, your honor, just being able to help you, such a great person as you, it's all the payment that I need. I don't need anything else, sir. But the Purit said, no, no, no. Pinchas, you saved my life. Really? If I didn't freeze to death, I for sure would have been sick and maybe I would have died from that. Please, how can I repay you? Anything, whatever you ask. And again, Pinchas said, no, 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 sir. Just being your humble servant is enough for me. But the Purit insisted and he said a third time, please. Tell me what I can do for you. So he said, Your Honor, you see my friend over here, he rents one of your inns. Because things didn't go well for him for the last few years, he's been unable to pay his rent. And he's about to lose his inn and he owes you a great deal of money. Besides losing his livelihood in his home, you might throw him in debtor's prison. So please, Your Honor, would you consider please helping my friend? And the poet said, Yes, of course. After what you did for me, I'm sure that your friend is just like you. And not only will I renew his lease, I'll forgive all of his past rent and allow him to have one year for free to save up so he can pay the rent the year after. And then the poet said, you know, it's very lucky that you're talking with me about it today because actually I had a meeting with my friend Pinchas A, who recently told me about a relative of his who wanted to rent an infamy and they figured this inn, which I didn't collect their rent on for years, Pinchas A's relative would be the perfect person to rent it out to. And I was planning on taking care of it, actually, today. I have a meeting with him today. But after you save my life, that won't be happening. The innkeeper, of course, was there. And the poet shakes his hand and gives him a little tap on his wrist. And he says, my dear friend, when you are a friend of Pinchas R, and you save the life of a it's like he did, you have nothing to worry about. You have the lease for as long as you want. I won't give it to anyone else. And now let me tell you, make sure you save up the money to pay the rent two years from now. And of course, eventually, the two Hasidim met by the Mittler Rebbe. When they went to the Rebbe to tell him what happened, the Rebbe looked at the two of them. With a big smile on his face, he said, I guess my son is right that a Rebbe doesn't make mistakes. Uh... I have another story for you. Of course, we're heading into Hanukkah now, and Hanukkah for me and my family is a very special holiday. We either sit in the house when it's raining outside, or sit outside in the public area near our house and play music for hours and hours while people come and sit by the Chanukah. So I have a little story for you about Chanukah. This story took place about 60 years ago. There was a Jew from Israel that traveled to Australia. And he was in a part of Australia, I guess, in one of the cities where there weren't so many Jews, even though he knew there was a Jewish community. And there was really no way to find the shul without asking people. But he didn't speak English. And Shabbos was coming, and he needed a place to stay. He didn't know what to do. Every time he would go over to somebody on the street and say, shul, they looked at him like he was crazy. So he came up with an idea. He went to a big fish store on Friday morning, and he figured if he saw somebody buying a very large fish, that person might be Jewish. And it worked. Someone came into the store and asked to buy a very large carp. And this Jew goes over to him and asks him in Hebrew, the person buying the fish is Jewish? And he said, yes. And the guy from Israel asked the Jew buying the carp, do you happen to have a place for me to stay for Shabbos? And this Jew was very happy to have a guest because he said, you know, where we live, there aren't a lot of visitors. I don't get the opportunity to do Achnasat Ochim, hosting a fellow Jew very often. And the two of them had a very nice Shabbos together. They were singing songs, giving over words of Torah and Motzah Shabbos after Shabbat was out. The Jew visiting from Israel thanked his host and he said, You know, you live in a very big, beautiful home, and I can see that Hashem has blessed you with wealth, but there is something that's bothering me. Can I ask you? And the host says, Yes, of course. the Jew from Israel said, I noticed in your china closet, with all of your fancy dishes and other fancy things, right in the middle is a broken bottle of olive oil. Why would you leave a broken bottle with all of your fancy stuff? And the man said, that bottle is very precious to me. It's actually the story of my life. Would you like to hear it? And of course, the Jew from Israel wanted to hear the story. So the wealthy Jew said that his father passed away when he was very young. And he was the oldest child in the family. And it was his responsibility to support his widowed mother and all of his younger siblings. And so there were kind people in the community. And they had compassion on him. And they helped him get into business. And Bo Hashem, thank God, he was successful right away. Very soon there was plenty of money in the house. However, the more money he made, the less religious he became. The first thing he took off was his keeper, cut off his payas, stopped wearing tzitziot, and one by one, he dropped all of the mitzvot because, of course, in order to do business, you have to do business on Shabbos. And in order to have business meetings, you have to go to non-kosher restaurants. And he was doing very well and bringing him lots of money. But he completely left a life of Torah and mitzvot, something that he had had his whole life up until that point. And one afternoon, he's walking home from work, and he sees there's a young Jewish boy sitting on the curb near his house crying. And of course, he had compassion on any child that was crying because he was an orphan, but all the more so a Jewish child. And so he says to this boy, what happened? Why are you crying? And the boy says, you know, it's almost Chanukah, And my father sent me to the store to buy olive oil. And he warned me, he said, to be very careful because we don't have much money and not to break the bottle. or We wouldn't have oil for lighting the chanukiya. And I was trying my best to be careful. And I'm holding the bottle really tight. But then a cat ran in front of me and scared me. And the bottle fell and it broke. The young boy showed the wealthy Jew the broken bottle lying in the gutter of the street. And he looks up at the wealthy Jew and he says, How can I go home to my father without the Hanukkah oil? So the wealthy Jew said to this boy, I'm a businessman. And the boy said, okay. And the wealthy Jew said, do you understand what business is about? And the boy said, no, not really. The wealthy Jew said, here's how it works. When you're in business, you buy something, and then you sell it. And you wanna buy something cheaper than it actually costs. So I wanna buy that broken bottle from you. And I wanna buy it for the cost of a new bottle of oil. And the boy looks up at the wealthy Jew and he says, but sir, this isn't worth anything anymore now that it's broken the wealthy Jew says, for me, it's worth so much. He says, here, go buy two bottles of olive oil, one for me and one for you. And the boy comes back and thanks the man and goes back home. The wealthy Jew had his bottle of olive oil and then he bends down and picks up the broken bottle that he bought from the boy. He tells the Jew from Israel, I hadn't lit Hanukkah candles in many years, but that year I did. Because when that child said to me, How can I go home to my father without the Hanukkah oil? I remembered my father lighting the Hanukkiah every year. And I thought to myself, one day I'm going to go home to my father in heaven. And how can I meet my father in heaven without lighting the Hanukkah candles? How can my soul return upstairs without having done this mitzvah? So I took the broken bottle and all of the shards from the gutter. Because this was the turning point in my life. That year I lit the Hanukkah candles. And afterwards I started keeping kosher. Then keeping Shabbos. And then I started putting on tefillin. And wearing tzitziot. And I put on a kippah. And I grew a beard. And I grew my peot. And Baruch Hashem. I have a beautiful family. With children. They all follow in the ways of the Torah. This is all because I saw a boy sitting by the street, crying, saying, how can I go home to my father without the olive oil for Hanukkah? He said, now you understand why I keep that bottle in my china closet. The truth is that broken bottle is worth more to me than all the wealth in the
1: world. i it...
0: Thank you so much for listening, my sweetest friends. As always, I want to bless everybody with a beautiful Hanukkah. May it be filled with light and health and wealth and wisdom and joy, good family time, spiritual revelations, being enveloped in Hashem's sweet, warm embrace. And thank you to all the people that support this podcast. I'm incredibly grateful to you for your financial support and the contributions that people send in. And I'm incredibly grateful to all of you, my sweetest friends, my listeners, because, of course, this podcast would be nothing without you. So thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing. And until next week, the Chanukah Sameach, a beautiful Chanukah full of light. Lechaim, lechaim. If you're still here, my sweetest friends, I want to share some stories with you from previous Hanukkahs, Here they are. Avreml Greenbaum survived World War II, but he lost his entire family, and as hard as it was, he came to America and tried to find a place that was as far away from Judaism as he possibly could, and so he ended up in a small town in Alabama, and just by chance he married one of the only Jewish women around. Not that he did it intentionally, he just ended up falling in love with this woman. And they had two children. His oldest son, whose name is Jeffrey. When he turned thirteen, so Avramel Greenbaum was no longer Avram Greenbaum. Now he was Aaron Green. And he knew that it was a tradition amongst American Jews to give a very big gift for a bar mitzvah. And seeing as that he wasn't really connected to his religion anymore, but he still was a Jew. Decided he was going to buy Jeffrey something really, really big. And so he took Jeffrey, who was 13 years old, to the mall. And he takes him into the biggest electronic store in the mall. And he says to his son, Whatever you want, Jeffrey, whatever you want, it's yours. Doesn't matter the price, just pick whatever you want. And so the boy looks around the store. And then he notices across on the other side of the mall, Looking out the window of the electronics store, he sees there's an antique store. And he's looking at something in the window, and he can't stop staring at it. His father, Aaron Green, looks at his son, and he says, Hey, what's going on? What are you looking at the antique store for? Look, we've got this whole store here of electronics. Really great stuff. You can have whatever you want. But the bar mitzvah boy, he was looking out the window at the antique store, and he just could not take his eyes off of something in the window. And so... Aaron Green, the father, he apologizes to the owner of the electronics store, and he says to his son, Okay, let's go. Let's go across the mall and see what's there. And so they walk across, and the whole time, Jeffrey is still staring in the window. And then he looks, and he sees there's a menorah, a Hanukkiah, in the window of the antique store. He points to it, and he says to his father, This is what I want for my bar mitzvah. The father says, "You Are you joking? You can have anything. The latest gadget. I'll spend any amount of money. And the boy says, nope, I only want that thing in the window. And he didn't even know what it was. Because even though Aaron Green of Remmel Greenbaum had grown up in a religious home with a yeshiva education, he didn't teach his kids really anything about being Jewish. They never even lit a menorah. And it would be one thing if this menorah was a silver menorah, an expensive one. But it was a wooden menorah put together from little pieces of wood. He wondered, what is it even doing in an antique shop? It looks like a piece of garbage. So the two of them go into the store, and Aaron Green says to the owner, we want to buy the menorah in the window. And the owner said, sorry, it's not for sale. And Aaron Green says, wait a minute, not for sale. This is a store, right? You sell things here. The owner said, yeah, I sell things, but I'm not selling the menorah. So Aaron Green says he was a wealthy man. He made a lot of money at that point. And he said, listen, maybe you don't understand. I'm going to offer you $10,000 for that menorah. $10,000. And the owner shakes his head and says, sorry, not selling it. And Aaron Green says, I don't understand. And the owner says, well, let me tell you, when I found out the history of this menorah and about the person who put it together during the war, I decided I'm not going to sell it. It took him months to find the pieces of wood. And to find this type of wood during the Shoah, during the Holocaust, was very difficult. And somehow, he pieced this wooden menorah together. Now, I know that the menorah survived, but the guy that put it together didn't survive. And so for me, that's a pretty big deal. And if this menorah survived and the man and his family didn't, well, I'm keeping the menorah. So Jeffrey looks at his father and he says, dad, I want that menorah. And so the father says, okay, I'm going to give you $15,000 for the menorah. And the store owner says, okay, $15,000, I'll change my mind. And he says, here you go. It's your menorah. And so for $15,000, he buys this menorah made out of little pieces of wood. And the father's thinking, oh, Faye, you know, I can't believe how much money I paid for this menorah. But then he sees his son goes upstairs and takes some candles and lights the menorah. And he sees that his son is really enjoying it. And then a few days later, they hear a crash. And their son, Geoffrey starts to cry. And the father runs upstairs and he sees the menorah fell on the floor and broke into a million pieces. And the first thought that he has is, Oy vey, that's $15,000 that fell on the floor and broke into little pieces. But the father, he didn't yell at his son. He he thought to himself, why should I yell at him? I mean, there's nothing I can do now. And so, like a good father, he sits down with his son and he says, You know what? Let's try to put it back together. And they tried. They had some glue and they tried to glue it back together. But it was such a mess. There was no way they were going to glue it back together. And then the father sees that one of the wooden pieces has a little hole in it. And in it, there's a tiny piece of paper. It's stuck in that piece of the menorah. So he takes a tweezers and pulls it out, and he sees that the note is in Yiddish. At first, he starts to cry. And the family doesn't understand because Aaron Green, his two children, and his wife are there, and he's crying. And then he lays down on the floor, and he passes out. So now everybody's really worried because they've never seen their father pass out before. And finally, he wakes up, and he says to them, let me read to you this letter. And so he holds the little piece of paper that was stuck in the menorah, and he translated it into English. To whoever finds this menorah, I want you to know that I put this together, not knowing if I would ever have the chance to light it. Who knows if I'm even going to see the day when it will be lit. And even if I do have the chance to light it for one night of Hanukkah, who says that I'll have the chance to light it for the second night of Hanukkah? Most likely I'm not going to survive the war. But if by Ashkechah Pratit, if by divine providence this menorah reaches your hands and you're the person who's reading this letter, please promise me and swear to me that you'll always light this menorah. Promise me that you'll light it for me and for us, my family, who didn't survive the war. Just promise me, if you find this note, you're going to light this Hanukkiah for me and my family. And then Aaron Green started crying again, and he looked up at his family, and he started to cry again, and it had a hard time getting the sound out. And he said, do you know who signed this letter? My father signed this letter. This is a menorah that somehow survived the war. My father, my whole family, they didn't survive the war. I'm the only one that survived the war. And I tried to get so far away from Yiddishkeit, from Judaism, but I couldn't. It came after me, and it's clear that this is my father speaking from Olama Ba, telling me of Remo. never forget you're a Jew. And he said, and isn't that what Hanukkah is all about? Remembering that you're a Jew and lighting the menorah, bringing light to the darkness. And so from that point on, Aaron Green always lit the menorah every year on Hanukkah, along with his wife and his children, and eventually his grandchildren as well. There was a group of Sadegor Hasidim that lived quite far from their Rebbe, and unfortunately, it cost quite a bit of money to make the trip across the Austrian border to the town of Sadegora to visit their Rebbe, Rabbi Avraham Yaakov. And so, since nobody could really afford the trip, the community had an idea, that everyone would donate a small amount of money, and then several times a year, for Chagim, and when there were special events with the Rebbe, the money in the general pot would be used to send one of the Hasidim to represent the whole community there. And so, when the time came, there was a lottery, and the winner of the lottery would get an all-expenses-paid trip to the Rebbe, representing the entire community. And when the Hasid arrived in Sadagora. The Rebbe understood that this wasn't just a personal visit, but this was somebody representing the entire community. And so the tzaddik would invite this person into his house and listen very intently to all the details of everything that was going on in the community. And he would ask questions as well. He would say, and what's with this family? And what's with this bachar? Is he getting married yet? The Rebbe remembered everyone. And at the end of the visit, the Rebbe always gave the representative of the community a pure silver coin. And these coins were collected over the years by the community and put in a special place in the shul. And since they did this for many years, and they sent people many times a year, they had accumulated a large amount of silver coins from the Rebbe. In one year, a month before Hanukkah, the leaders of the community got together and called a special meeting in the shul. The head of the community, he stood up and he said, listen, you know, we have a huge collection of these coins. These silver coins from the Rebbe, and they're worth quite a lot of money at this point. I think it's time for us to use them for a holy purpose. I think we should take them to a God fearing silversmith who will melt them down and shape them into a large, beautiful Hanukkah menorah. The crowd was listening, and then the head of the community continued and he said, This menorah is going to have a special place in our shul. On Hanukkah, we will auction off to the highest bidder every night of Hanukkah the Schut the privilege of lighting the special Chanukkiah. And the money that's raised will be used for the communal needs, including the tzedakah funds for helping the poor and the sick, and helping marrying off new brides. And the community was very happy with this. They took a vote, and it was unanimous. The coins would be used to make a Chanukkiah that every year would be auctioned off to light the wicks on the Chanukkiah. And so, a month later, when the first night of Chanukkah came, Both the men's and women's section of the shul were packed. Even more than on Yom Kippur, there was hardly any room to breathe. (laughs) Everybody was staring at the southern wall of the shul, where the beautiful new silver menorah was sparkling. And the auction began, and slowly the bids went higher and higher and higher, until all the poor people, and even those who were not so poor, had to drop out of the bidding. And only the wealthy people were able to go to higher and higher amounts, which they did very quickly, until in the end, on the first night, the first candle was given to Reb Lipa, the timber merchant. And with a great deal of emotion, he said the brachas with intense concentration. And then everyone shouted, Amen! And there was a loud echo in the shul. And then he reached out his arm and lit the shamash, and then lit the candle for the first night of Hanukkah. And the same thing happened for the next seven nights. All the wealthy Hasidim were trying to outbid each other, the price going higher and higher, while the poor Hasidim in the community realized that they would never, ever get a chance to light this Hanukkiah. But at least they were there to see it, and at least they could answer Amen. And for the most part, they accepted their fate. But there was one person who couldn't accept this. It was Rebbe Baruch the tinsmith. He was such a dedicated Hasid to the Rebbe, and so bound with love that it pained him so deeply that he didn't have the chance to personally light the Hanukkiah made with the Rebbe's silver coins. Not once, and possibly not ever. And that year, all of Chanukkah passed, and even though Reb Baruch would bid in the beginning, there was no way that he could reach the sums of money that were being bid by the wealthy Jews. And it was a difficult winter, dreary and dark, but not for Baruch, because Baruch made up his mind. He was going to work an extra hour every day and take the extra money that he made and put it in a special bundle so that he would have enough money to bid to light the Hanukkiah the next year. And the months went by. The month of Tishrei with Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot and all the holidays came. And even though it cost quite a lot of money to celebrate Tishrei, somehow Baruch held on to most of the money. And he was waiting, waiting, waiting Constantly adding one coin after another, waiting for Chanukah to come. And then, just one month before Chanukah, Baruch's wife became ill. And he went to all of the doctors, but nobody could help her. And so Baruch didn't have any choice except to take her to the big professor in the big city, who unfortunately cost a lot of money. And the only extra money that Baruch had was the money that he'd been saving up to light the Hanukkiah. Thank God, the treatment worked and his wife had a full recovery. But Hanukkah came, and Baruch was broke, just like the year before. And once again, the bidding began, and Baruch is so frustrated. He'd been so close to being able to bid for the Hanukkiah. He worked so hard all year, saving the extra money. And he watches the first night goes by, and the second night, and the third night, and the fourth night. And Baruch is watching the Hanukkiah being lit by another person, and another wealthy Jew. And he's eating his heart out and he's saying, I don't understand Hashem. I worked so hard for this. And then the fifth night comes, and the sixth and the seventh. And when the time came for the eighth night of Hanukkah, the bidding began, and Baruch knew he had no chance. So he pushed his way to the front of the shul and he jumped onto the bima. And he says, Listen, my sweetest friends, listen, listen, stop the bidding. You need to listen to me. And everyone quieted down, said, This is the second year that I, Simple Chasid and tinsmith. I've been consumed with the desire to light the Rebbe's Chanukiah For a whole year, I worked extra time putting aside money so that I would be able to bid with the wealthy Hasidim here. Coin by coin, hour by hour, I did everything so that I would have the schut, the merit to light the Chanukiah this year. And then my wife got sick, and all of the money went to help her. And let me tell you, my sweetest friends, I can't take it anymore. I need to light the Chanukiah this year. So I have an idea. My little rundown house is worth 300 crowns. I'm going to give my house to the shul. And I'll continue to live in it. But every month I'll pay rent to the community until i paid off the house. Please accept my offer and let me please light the Chanukiah this year. The community was so impressed by the sincerity and the innocence and the purity of Baruch's plea. That everyone said together, Mazel Tov Rabuch, the community accepts. Please light the chanukiah. And Rabaruch was shaking when he took the sitter to say the brachas. And he said them with such kavana and such deep intention that there wasn't a dry eye in the shul. Everybody understood that this was not a wealthy Jew lighting a Hanukkiah. This was a Hasid who was so connected to his Rebbe, he was willing to do anything just to have that connection with this special Chanukkiah. And even though the years after that, Reb Baruch couldn't afford to light the Chanukkiah again because he never had the money, especially when he was paying off his house for so many years. But the community said, we never saw a lighting of the Chanukkiah like when Reb Baruch lit it, the second year on that special Hanukkah night. Everybody knows that during World War II, during the Holocaust, the last group of Jews to end up suffering in the concentration camps were the Jews of Hungary. And amongst those Jews that were rounded up and brought to the concentration camp of Bergen Belsen was a Hasid and Torah scholar by the name of Shmuel Shmelki Schnitzler. One of the things that stood out about Reb Shmelki was that he was very tall and had warm and penetrating eyes. And even though everyone around him was depressed, and how could you not be? Being in such a place like Bergen-Belsen, being a chassid, and having complete amunah and a kadosh ba'uchu Reb Shmelke was able to maintain a mood of being sincerely happy, even in a place like Bergen-Belsen. And he would go around and encourage his fellow Jews not to give up. He would say, a Jew, in despair, they don't belong together. They're like oil and water. There's no way that a Jew can despair. Whenever possible, he would organize a minyan, especially on Shabbos. And at night, he would tell Hasidic stories and gather people around him and transport them away from the hell of this concentration camp. Because he was able to remain in such a good mood, despite the crazy circumstances, Reb Shmelki even became friendly with some of the cruelest guards in the camp. And through these connections, he was able to help some of his fellow Jews. He was given the job, which some might seem like a terrible job, to remove people who had passed away overnight. But he saw it as a great mitzvah, because everybody knows that bearing the dead is one of the greatest mitzvahs a Jew can do. It's called chesed emet, which means true kindness. Because once a person has passed away, they can't pay you back for doing them the favor of bearing them. And so despite the circumstances, Rav was honored to have the job of taking care of the bodies of Jews who had passed away in the camp. And one day he was called for an emergency pickup of somebody who had died, and he was running through the camp, and his foot sank into a hole in the ground. Now the whole time, Rav was thinking to himself, Hanukkah is coming, and how can I possibly have Hanukkah without lighting a Hanukkiah? But here in a place like a concentration camp, not only is there nothing that could be flammable because people would use it to try to escape or harm the Nazis, but finding something like that, no one could even imagine such a thing. Reb he constantly asked Hashem to help him. He said, Hashem, I will never despair, no matter what. And I know you can do miracles. One day, Bezat Hashem, you're going to take us all out of here. But if it's not today, Hashem, help me to figure out how i am going to light the lights for Hanukkah. And so he looked down into this hole, which his foot was stuck into. It was red mud. He pulls his foot out, and he sticks his hand inside. It was clear that this isn't a normal hole. Somebody had dug this hole and covered it up for a reason. And when he puts his hand deeper in, he feels there's something solid in the mud. And he pulls it out, and he sees it's a small jar with oil. He sticks his finger into it very gently. And he sees that it is oil. He couldn't believe it. He remembered the miracle of Hanukkah and how the Maccabees discovered the oil that had been left from the time of the Beit HaMikdash. And here he was discovering a jar of oil in Bergen-Belsen of all places. It was a Hanukkah miracle. So now he's thinking to himself, okay, what am I going to light the oil with? And he says, maybe there's something else. And he sticks his hand in the hole. He digs around in the dirt and he finds... The most miraculous thing? Eight little cups and eight thin strands of cotton. Along with it were a few matches as well. This was the craziest thing to find in a place like Bergen-Belsen. He put everything back into the hole and covered it up, just like when he had found it. But now Rabbi Shmelke was a little concerned, because there were a lot of people in the camp, and it could be that he discovered the Chanukiah of someone else. So as he was working his rounds around the camp, he started asking people, maybe somebody had hid some oil in the hiding place, and people looked at him like he was out of his mind. Oil in a place like this? Are you joking? But now it was the night of Hanukkah, and Reb went in the dark of the night to the hole. He dug out the oil, the glass cups, the matches and the wicks, and he came back, and he told everyone in his barracks, Hashem is done a Hanukkah miracle for us, and we're going to light right now. But then somebody said, but what if the Nazis come? They'll kill us all. And Rabbi Shmelke said, don't you understand, my friends? This is a miracle direct from God. We have nothing to fear. Just like I had the faith that Hashem wouldn't abandon me and would provide us with a Hanukkiah, we all have to have the faith that we can light this Hanukkiah and nothing bad will happen to us. So everybody gathered around. And Reb said the brachas out loud. Out loud. Where did he find the chutzpah to do this? But nothing happened. No one showed up at the barracks. He lit the first light of Hanukkah. And everyone stood around crying, watching the little flame flicker, burning the oil. It only lasted for a few minutes because there wasn't a lot of oil, and the wicks were very small. But everyone felt like there might be some light in all this darkness. And the next night, everyone got together again, and Reb Shmelke said, We have nothing to fear. And he said the brachas out loud again, and lit two lights. And every night, he lit the Chanukiah. And for all eight nights, no one came and disturbed them. They were able to sit there and watch the light burn bright against the darkness of the concentration camp. A few months later, the war ended in April 1945. And Ribshmelki survived the war. He moved back to Hungary, where he served as a rabbi for other survivors and became known as the Tachaberav. Several years later, he made a trip to the United States, and when he was there, he went to meet the Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, who was living in Brooklyn. Now, one of the reasons the Reb went to visit the Satmar Rebbe is because the Satmar Rebbe, who was also from Hungary, had also been in Bergen-Belsen. But in the winter of 1944, there was a miraculous escape where many Jews were able to get out of Bergen-Belsen. And one of the Jews that escaped was the Satmar Rebbe. So Reb understood that meeting the Sadma Rebbe was not just meeting a great Rebbe, but also meeting somebody who had been in the same place as him. And they had a little conversation. And then the Rebbe said to Reb Shmelki, I heard that you had the great schus, the great honor of lighting the Hanukkah candles in Bergen-Belsen. And Reb Shmelki was really taken aback. He said, how does the Rebbe know this? And the Rebbe said, ah, the Rebbe knows many things, and gave Reb Shmelki a smile. A few minutes later, the Rebbe bent over and whispered into Reb Shmelke's ear. He said, Reb I'm the one who hid the oil. The cups and those wicks and the oil that you found by the fence, I hid them there. Before I found out about the rescue plan, I asked somebody to help me get together some oil cups and wicks, and I buried them in the field. One of the things that I regretted when I left the camp was I didn't know if anyone would ever find them. And then the Rebbe said to Reb Shmelke, but after I left, I realized that Hashem would make sure that the right person would find the oil and the wicks in the glass and use it to bring light to our fellow prisoners, Sir so, Abshmelki. It's my greatest honor to be in your presence and know that you're the one who Hashem chose to light my Chanukiah. <laughs> Velville was a poor Jew living in Frankfurt, Germany, in the mid seventeen hundreds, just barely making ends meet and constantly struggling to support his family. But one possession he had that was worth a great deal was a very special Hanukkah menorah that had once belonged to the Bach, Rabbi Yoel circus who passed away about a hundred years before. The Bach was known as one of the great Ashkenazi poskim, an expert in Jewish law. And this menorah was made out of silver and had two diamonds set in it. Velvel had inherited this from his grandfather, who left it to his father, and who left it to Velvel. And his father told Velvel, before he left this world, there's no greater way to celebrate the mitzvah of lighting the Hanukkiah than using this very special menorah from the Holy Bach. And I bless you, my son, that you should never need to sell it, and it should only bring you revealed good for you and your family. So even though the family lived in poverty, and this Hanukkiah could be sold for a great deal of money, Velvel would never sell the menorah, and one of his sons became a little resentful. He said to his father, I don't understand, so go buy yourself another menorah. Buy a beautiful one. People are willing to spend a lot of money for this menorah, and we need the money. But Velvel refused to sell. But then one day, he was presented with a business opportunity to buy and then resell a large piece of property from a wealthy man who had to leave the country. And Velvel gave it some thought and realized this was really a great business opportunity. So not having the money, he took the menorah to one of the Jews in the community, a wealthy Jew, and he borrowed the money to buy the property. The deal was done. The wealthy man fled the country. Velville had his large piece of property. And as he's making his rounds to find out who would buy the property so he could sell it, make his money back, and make a profit, a lawyer comes to Velville and says, this property is not yours. And Velvel says, what are you talking about? I bought it fair and square. I have the documents to prove it. He said, did you have those documents written up by a lawyer? And he said, no. The wealthy man wrote the documents up himself. I just trusted him. And the lawyer said, well, he cheated you. The property is not registered in his name anymore. He had borrowed the money from the bank to buy the property. And then he fled the country. The property still belongs to the bank. And so Velvo lost all of his money. And not just that, he lost his Chanukiah." because he had no way of buying it back. And Velvo was a little devastated by all this, the loss of the money, and all the more so the loss of the Hanukkiah, especially after his father told him there was no greater way to celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah than by lighting the menorah of the Holy Bach. But then Velvel's son, the one who had criticized him for not being willing to sell the menorah in order to support the family, he'd now had enough. He said to his father, Religious people like you are so selfish. All you care about is yourself and your possessions. And here, I'll prove it to you. The menorah of the Bach meant more to you than your own family. Because why else would you leave your family in poverty than sell the menorah? And here, you sold it and you lost all your money. I want nothing to do with you and your religion and God. And so his son left the house. And when Velvel tried to find out what happened to his son, He discovered there was a group of boys that he'd been hanging out with, and all of them decided to be secular as well, and atheists. So he understood that it wasn't just resentment towards his father, that he was being influenced by his friends. And Velvo, not knowing what to do, went to his rabbi, the holy Rav Abish of Frankfurt, and he poured out his soul to him. He told him what happened with the business deal and the menorah and his son, and he asked for a bracha, a blessing and advice. And Rav Abish, he said... May we merit to see your son do tshuva and return to your family. And may you also merit to prosper and pay back all of your debts very soon. And so Velvel, with a broken heart, says, Amen, Rabbi. Amen. May it be Hashem's will. And time passed, and it came Shabbos Shuva, the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And Velvel went to Shul, and Rav Abish, he gave a drasha, he gave a sermon, in which he presented a situation where there were two mitzvahs. One that could be done right now, and one that would be done later. But if a person were to do the mitzvah right now, you might not have the means to do the other mitzvah later. So what does a person do? The rabbi said, you do the mitzvah that's in front of you right now. And you do it with whatever money you have, whatever means you have, without worrying about the next mitzvah. Even though you might think that you can't fulfill it if you do the first mitzvah. And he brought the opinion of the Radvas, who said that if you do the first mitzvah, it will give you the merit, the schut, to do the second one. And so do the first one with total faith and with complete joy, and allow Hashem to figure out how the second mitzvah will be fulfilled. And shortly after Sukkot, a relative of Velvel was trying to get together money to buy some grain that could be bought cheaply and resold at a considerable profit. And he came to Velvel and he said, what do you think, Velvel? We can do a deal together, but I don't have all the money. Do you have some savings? Do you have something you can put into the deal? Velvel spoke with his wife, and she supported him. And he was very cautious because he'd lost so much money before, but he had been able to save up some money. So he put all the money that he had into the deal with his relative. And Baruch Hashem, he made a great profit, much more than he ever imagined. And it was so much money that he could go and buy back his menorah. The first thing he did, even before he went home, was go to the home of the man who had originally lent him the money. And when he arrived, he discovered that the man had passed away three weeks earlier, and his children, not knowing the value of the menorah, simply sold it for the silver and the diamonds. So Velvo asked them, who did they sell it to, which dealer? And he went to the dealer, and the dealer said, I'm sorry, I already resold it to someone else, a collector. And he told them where the collector was. So Velvo traveled to the collector. And he gets there, and he says that this menorah was an inheritance from his father, who had inherited it from his father. And yes, it has some intrinsic value, the materials, but really, it has much more sentimental and spiritual value to me and my family. And I'd like to please buy it from you. But the dealer wasn't impressed by this story. He just saw an opportunity to make money, and he quoted a crazy price. It was much more money than Velvel had borrowed, but he didn't have any choice. He gave over all the money to the merchant and bought the Bach's menorah back. And on his way home, as he's getting closer to Frankfurt, Velvel sees in the distance a young man walking on the road. He looks thin, not very clean. And when he gets closer, he realizes it's his son who had run away six months before. And Velvel shouts out, my son! His son looks up and sees his father on a wagon with a horse. He Says, please get on the wagon. Come and join me. And so the son agreed to get on the wagon on the condition that his father wouldn't discuss religion or God with him. And so Velvo said, sure, I won't talk about God. He said, but look, I have the menorah of the Bach. I bought it back. I made a business deal and I made a lot of money. And The first thing I did was go to buy the menorah, even though it costs a lot more money than I had borrowed. It was worth it. And his son says, you see, this is why I don't believe in religion and don't believe in God. What's more important to you, your family or that stupid menorah? Instead of using the money that you made from the business deal to help your family, you went off, as usual, your selfish self, going and getting your silver heirloom menorah, blah, blah, blah. So the rest of the ride, Velvo and his son just sat there in silence. And a little while later, they saw a man sitting under a tree, crying, clearly a religious Jew, Velvel stops the wagon, and he says to the man, what's going on here? And the man says, my daughter is engaged to be married. But another shidduch has just been proposed to the father of the groom. And because I don't have a large sum of money to pay for the wedding, and to pay for the dowry, the father of the groom wants to marry his son off to this other woman, instead of my daughter. And I know my daughter will be devastated. She really loves this boy, and she really wants to marry him. But what am I supposed to do? I don't have the money. So Velvel is quiet for a minute, he looks at this man under the tree, he looks at the menorah, he's looking back and forth between the man under the tree and the menorah, and then he remembers the words that his rabbi spoke on Shabbos Shuva. It's more important to do the mitzvah that's in front of you than the mitzvah that will come in the future. And right in front of him was the mitzvah of tzedakah and achnasat kalah, of giving charity to your fellow Jews and helping with the expenses of a wedding. And these are more important than lighting the Hanukkiah of the Bach. And so Velvel said to the man, would you mind coming with us for a little ride in my wagon? I think I can help you. So the man says, sure, where are we going? And they start riding and they go for a long time, many hours, until they get back to the collector dealer that had the menorah of the Bach. And he sees Velvel coming back with the menorah and he says, what's wrong? And Velvel says, nothing's wrong. It's just that I have to return it to you. I'm really sorry. I need my money back. And the merchant, seeing another opportunity to make money. He said, yeah, sure, no problem. There's a policy here. All returns get bought back at 50%. Velvo says, "It's not fair. This is no problem. You keep your menorah. Go sell it someplace else. You want your money back from me? You get half as much. Once again, Velvo looks at the menorah, looks at the guy that was sitting under the tree that's now in his wagon. He says, okay, here you go. He hands over the menorah and gets back half of the money that he had. And most of that money he gives to the man, drives him back to Frankfurt, and says, Mazel tov. may your daughter have a beautiful Jewish home, Shalom Bayit, Parnassa, and only revealed good for you and your whole family. And this Jew, he said, you know, Velvel, I don't know how to thank you. For a thousand lifetimes, I could never thank you enough for what you did for me. In the merit of doing this mitzvah, may you be blessed back so many times, you can't even count them. Valvo said, Amen. He had a little bit of money left over. Not very much after all of this. And he says to his son, you see, my son, this is how things work in life. Sometimes you think that things are going to work one way, but they don't. And a person that has a muna, person that has faith in Hashem, knows that everything that Hashem does is ultimately for the person's good. And I know that. And so I'm going to choose to be happy, even though I lost a great deal of money. And once again, I've also lost the menorah of the holy Bach. And Velvel looks over at his son, who has tears in his eyes. He said, my son, don't worry. Hashem can send me the money again. I'm not worried about the money. The son said, no, my father, you don't understand. I know how hard you work to make the money that you invested, and I know how much that menorah means to you. And I know that you've been going around from person to person just trying to get the menorah back. And then once you get it, you sell it for a fraction of the price in order to help a complete stranger to marry off his daughter. I realized that I was wrong, Father. You're not selfish. You're willing to love others, a stranger, even more than yourself. Tati, as far as I'm concerned, you're as righteous as they come. And he said to his father, please accept my forgiveness. I want to come back home. And Velvel was so surprised, he almost fainted in his wagon. And When he got back home, Velvel's son went to his friends. He said, let me tell you what happened with my father. And through this story, all of those boys themselves did tshuva and came back to a life of Torah and mitzvot. And Velvel went on with his life, doing work wherever he could find, barely getting by always dreaming of one day maybe buying back the menorah, if he could even find it. And one day he hears about a wealthy Jew from a distant town who's trying to set up his daughter with some nice young boy. And the problem was that his daughter had been in an accident when she was young, and she couldn't walk in one of her legs. And as a result, no one wanted to marry her. So this wealthy Jew, he offered a great amount of money to whoever could make the shidduch for his daughter. And Velvel just happened to know a guy who he thought was really good for this woman. And he set the two of them up. And a couple of weeks later, they decided they were going to get married. And the wealthy Jew was so overjoyed, he came to Frankfurt to give a gift to Velvel, as he promised. The gift was put in a box. And when Velvel opened the box, there was a light shining out of the box. It was a Hanukkah menorah. And it looked exactly like the one that he had inherited from his father. So Velvel says to the wealthy Jew, Please, where did you buy this from? And he says, Oh, there was a merchant. And he names the town. And the name of the merchant, the exact merchant, who had sold the menorah back to Velvel and who Velvel had returned it to. The wealthy Jew said, I was just walking around town and I was looking for something special. And I see this beautiful silver menorah with diamonds in it. And the dealer told me it was apparently the Bach's menorah. I figured that's a fitting gift for someone who made a shudach for my daughter. And so that Chanukah, Velvel had the schut, the merit, to once again light the Bach's menorah. And he stood there in front of the lights for a long time, tears coming down his face, pondering the wondrous ways of Hashem. And suddenly he hears a knock at the door. Goes and opens it and he sees it's his Rabbi, Rabbi Ebesh. He says, Rabbi, what are you doing here? He said, Velvon, I was standing in my menorah and I had a vision of you standing in front of your menorah and I wanted to see what does it look like to be in front of a menorah that not just gives off the light of Hanukkah and the holiness of the Bach but also the light of giving tzedakah and helping to marry off Akala and bringing all of these young boys back to the fold of Torah and mitzvot. He said, Velvon, only your menorah radiates that light. And it's the Mahadran mahadrin, the most kosher of kosher menorahs anywhere around. Chanukah Sameach, my sweetest friends. Fredech and Chanukah. May your Chanukah be filled with light and joy that carries you every day, not just through Chanukah, but through the whole year.
1: Lie, lie, lie. Did he die, 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 die? Did he die, 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 Did I lie Did 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 I, I 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 did I, did I